we can anticipate that in the coming years, um, it will be technically impossible to write an algorithm that will be able to tell, you know, consistently what's real from what's fake. Hi, I'm Anna Krane. I'm the research manager at Tech Against Terrorism, an organization that supports the global tech sector, tackle terrorist and violent extremist use of the internet whilst respecting human rights. Welcome back to another episode of our podcast. This week, we're discussing the rapidly evolving phenomenon of deepfakes. We explore how deepfakes are being manipulated for malign purposes, including by terrorists and violent extremist actors. And we consider how this threat might develop as the technology improves at an exponential rate, and what this means for terrorist propaganda, online disinformation, and global security. We also ask what tech platforms, the media, and policymakers should be doing to get ahead of this threat. For those of you hearing the term for the first time, deepfakes refer to media that have been generated by artificial intelligence to imitate someone else's likeness. The AI can go so far as depicting a person doing or saying things that they've never actually said or done. Donald Trump, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and Pope Francis have all fallen victim to deepfakes. And there's growing concern that the digitally manipulated media will more frequently and more convincingly be used for nefarious purposes with far-reaching consequences. To discuss this further, I'm joined by Chris Messerol, Director of the Brookings Artificial Intelligence and Emerging Technology Initiative and a Fellow in Foreign Policy at the Brookings Institution, and Professor Daniel Byman, a Senior Fellow in the Centre for Middle East Policy at the Brookings Institution. Our guests have recently co-written a paper discussing the use of deepfakes and international conflict and highlighting the pressing need to develop policies to address this new danger. So what exactly are deepfakes and how might someone go about making one? I asked Chris to explain. A deepfake itself is, generally speaking, it's a synthetic form of media. It can be an audio file, it can be a video uh, or an image. Depending on how you define it, it could also uncover things like text and written language as well. But it's basically an, an audio or video or, or, or visual image of someone that seems very realistic, right? So it's, uh, you know, to create a deep fake of me, what you would do is, uh, I probably shouldn't actually put a, <laughs> a playbook out on the web for people, but, you know, you could kind of go find the, the podcast like this, the other kind of events I've done. There's enough material out there that you could kind of get good images of me, good audio of me. And you could create like a, a, you know, load that into some of the deepfake apps that now exist and create realistic versions of me saying and doing things that I did not in fact say and do, but look to the untrained eye uh, as if I had. As an aside on terms of like how, how quickly the technology is advancing, the editorial process for a policy paper tends to take a few months. In our case, I think it was like six to nine months or maybe a little bit longer uh, as the process the evolved. In that time, the entire field of generative AI was completely revolutionized by something called stable diffusion. It's a totally different architecture. It's almost impossible for us to be able to keep up with the rate of change on these technologies. And and to me, that was one of the most interesting things about this whole process of doing the project. It was the first project I've done in real time where the editorial and research project was literally outstripped by tech in real time while we were doing it. To give a clearer picture of how deepfakes might be used with malicious intent, I asked Daniel to share some recent examples. Some people listening to this may recall that at the outbreak of the Ukraine war, uh, we saw Russia release a deepfake of uh, President Zelensky that was that was quickly detected and discredited, but states are quickly using them. Uh, we've also seen criminals use them. And there was a case where someone 
used uh, a deepfake audio to imitate someone's boss to transfer some money. And often what we see in more sophisticated spaces like you know, um, impressive criminal organizations will diffuse to more violent ones. And you know, one thing to think about with this technology is simply how democratic it is that many of these things become more and more available. And a lot of this initially will just be fun, right? You could, you know, put your own voice in that of the president or something like that. And then, you know, ha ha ha. But over time, you'll be able to do more and more sophisticated things without having to have the technical skill. And as it happens, we'll see a range of extremist groups, some of which have technical skill, but many of which really don't have more than kind of your average 20 year uh, probably using these technologies in a variety of ways. So are deepfakes being exploited by terrorists and violent extremists? Chris says we're starting to see glimpses of their potential usefulness to these actors. There's a whole host of use cases that deepfakes might serve for uh, extremists and terrorists. And I think some of them are related to mobilization, right? Like you create a deepfake to mobilize people, you know, your own supporters for different issues. In my view, we saw an early preview of this on the far right and the images of Trump being arrested. You know, they were created using Midjourney. I don't know that they were necessarily created with the intent of mobilizing an extremist group, but the effect of it was to kind of rile up a base of really far-right extremists um, around just the very prospect of him being arrested. You know, the, the, the way it was used was less to try and deceive people and more to kind of to flex, right? It was, to, it was to show this is the level of support that we have. This is what will happen if he is, in fact, arrested uh, and to set the stage for, the, you know, potential political consequences of an arrest like that. I can see a future where other extremist movements kind of learn from that experience and begin to kind of preemptively try and manipulate the the media narrative in a way that they feel like will favor mobilization among their supporters. So that's kind of one very obvious use case. Another is less about, you know, mobilizing your own support and more about disrupting, you know, your adversaries, right? Or kind of disrupting their support. You know, and there it can be kind of you relate, you know, you create similar debate deepfakes of your political opponents or a rebel group that you're opposed to, for example, create a deepfake of uh, their leader and with it's compromising to that leader. As these technologies get better and better, it's going to be very hard for covert organizations in particular to necessarily push back and authenticate which pieces of content are real and which aren't. Daniel adds that terrorists and violent extremists are likely to use deepfakes to create confusion for the purpose of inciting violence. One thing I would think of for terrorists or extremist groups in general is to take an already tense situation and make it more tense. So you can imagine the, in the American context when there were Black Lives Matter protests and there were counter protests, uh, you can imagine deep fake being released while that is going on. That shows on the one hand, perhaps, you know, police shooting into crowds or on the other hand, peaceful protesters abusing uh, violence, clubbing police. Even if, you know, 24 hours later it's disgranded, then that would be way too late. You would need some ability to respond quickly. And so I think crisis management will become a lot harder. Obviously, there are specific things that any group could do that would help it as it went along against its enemies. So it could be, you know, discrediting particular regimes or leaders by, you know, showing those leaders making hateful statements 
ordering attacks, engaging in personal behavior that discredits them among constituents. Unfortunately, the, the limit is really your imagination. To build on Dan's point, deepfakes in some ways are most effective in times of deep uncertainty about what is actually happening. And there's one particular terrorist implication uh, of deepfakes for you know terrorist dynamics that's important to consider, I think, which is a lot of our counterterrorism strategies are predicated on leader decapitation, you know, kind of taking out a leader of a particular terrorist group, in which case the succession plans of that leader within an organization become really important. And I think one of the things we've seen over time is that you'll often see group fragmentation after a, a leadership strike where it's unclear who the who the rightful kind of heir to the throne is, so to speak. We're moving towards a world where if you have multiple competing heirs, they're going to be able to create deepfake audio of whoever the leader was that was just killed, having them say that they are the rightful heir. You know, this is a very niche, like kind of terror counterterrorism uh, issue with regard to deepfakes, but I think it's one that the, the counterterrorism community is going to have to kind of wrestle with. What keeps Daniel up at night is not just the use of individual deepfakes, but the larger impact that deepfakes and other fabricated information will have on our trust in all future information. Another big concern is simply destroying credibility of all information, right? So in a crisis situation, flip it around. Leaders decide to compromise. Uh, leaders call for calm. Uh, situations might be diffused. Well, how do we know that's real, right? How do we know that this leader has actually called for her protesters to you know, take a step back? And so that disbelief can have really profound consequences by discrediting good information, not just discrediting bad information like blackmail. This is going to be an endless problem, really just because of, unfortunately, what we've learned about human behavior on the internet in the last 15 years. Um, so I think we'll see this happening really in every community to the extent that various uh, technology companies are not able to develop countermeasures against them. Deep fakes will simply take it one step further. Um, I know we'll talk about possible solutions as this goes on. But I, I think we're getting to the point where we have to think at a societal level rather than at a technology level, where we're simply going to have so much information that is false, flooding you know, our daily feeds and often very personalized. And how do we handle that? And how do we think about belief and disbelief? How do we think about privacy? These are obviously really big questions. You know, might terrorist groups or extremists use this? Sure. But I think that particular problem is just going to be a massive one in the sense of there might be an angry or stupid 17-year-old who does this to a classmate without much more thought than, hey, I could do this, won't it be funny? And that to me is, is going to be a very deep problem. So how can we protect ourselves from being fooled by a deep fake? Back to Chris. As of now, there's still some some kind of technical ways of, of spotting them. There are, there are certain parts of like, you know, with images in particular, for example, there's still kind of certain parts of human anatomy that are difficult to generate. So things like fingers on your hands, fingers often get kind of, you know, you think about all the different ways that people have like interlocked fingers uh, in, a, in an image or, you know, if they've got a certain kind of pose that they're striking, some of their fingers are visible and some aren't. We have a very good mental model of how a hand should look in a wide variety of poses in the data that's used to train a lot of generative AI models, there actually aren't enough images of different kind of poses of hands for most of these models to like actually have a really good 
internal representation of what a finger is and how it relates to all the other fingers on your hand. And so if you if you look at any particular image and it's not clear to you whether it's a deep fake, the first thing I would recommend is just like looking at the hands. If there's like six fingers or one finger is pointing off in a way that's like literally just bending physics, uh, you can kind of tell that it's not it's not right. You know, you may have seen my favorite deep fake so far, I have to admit, is the Pope Francis in the puffer jacket uh, deep fake, which is just the chef's kiss of generative AI, uh, like so far anyway. But if you look at the the hand that's holding the coffee mug and that, like that was the tell to me that that probably wasn't a real one. Like the coffee mug and the hand and the way that it added up wasn't great. The other one would be like the shadows of glasses on your uh, on your face, which again, this is the same thing uh, on the post Francis image. The shadow wasn't quite right for the way that the lens of, of the glass was angled. So little things like that are still tells, but I think over time, we can't really depend on those uh, those tells. And it's going to be I think, though, the world that we're going to have to head towards is you probably won't be able to create an algorithm that can tell just by looking at the image, which means you either need to inject noise in the image in a way that the the creator of different deepfake programs, they can control like, you know, how they scatter different pixels across the image so that the naked eye can't really tell the difference if there's just a little bit of noise in there. But if you created that image and then you were asked to analyze different images, you could pull out that noise and see a certain kind of signature uh, in the image to, to be able to say, no, this was actually something that we created on our platform or that was created on our platform. That'll be one way of doing it. Another, which I would actually like to see some of the major plat- like major deflate platforms like Midjourney, the ones that from OpenAI, Google, et cetera, start to do is to actually leverage the infrastructure we've already built and actually just add anything that they are creating to a hash sharing database and just hash the image that they're created. If they all use the same kind of hash protocol, you know, anytime I see something on the web uh, and there's an interface to the, the hash database, I could take that image, hash it, and then just check it against the database. And if it's in there, you know that one of the major platforms like produced that image. Like I think that's probably in the long run the, the as close a technical solution as we'll be able to get. Daniel says policymakers will have to adapt in order to successfully counter the threat of deepfakes. He says both governments and the media need to be cautious in order to verify information correctly. As you're planning and thinking about different scenarios, think about the information space and especially the possibility for much greater distortion than in the past. So just to take an example in the news today, if you're thinking about a U.S.-China confrontation over Taiwan, Let's think about how different actors might affect that uh, with defects. And obviously, those could be very sophisticated state actors like China. But um, how would some more troubling extremists handle this? right? And we can imagine that in a counterterrorism sense. We can imagine it in a political sense. But just as we're thinking about scenarios, uh, we tend to assume a certain level of information fidelity. And I think that assumption should be should be questioned and actively planned for. There's a broader question which goes against the trend of everything happening in terms of the media, which is to try to move more slowly. Right? Um, the idea that you would pause for verification, that when you are putting things up that have come up quite suddenly, you would note that it hadn't been verified in kind of big, bold, flashing letters. And that recognizing that a lot of stuff coming, especially out of uh, crisis situations, um, is going to be distorted and maybe a deep thing. And I think we're going to have to have several quite embarrassing failures before that's realistically going to be the case, but it'd be nice if people could think about that in advance. And then that concern to me is even bigger while we talk about decision makers. 
obviously decision makers want to respond quickly. And when you have a, a delicate situation, say the aftermath of a terrorist attack, that's going to be something where leaders will want to respond, but a bit more of a pause may be in order in order to ensure that the information is at least basically correct. I really worry that, you know, not even terribly sophisticated deepfakes, but some deepfakes will go forward in a time when people are making decisions very quickly. And as a result, they'll make dangerously bad ones because of bad information. Chris highlights that there will be a temptation for governments and their security services to adopt deepfakes themselves for strategic purposes. One other concern that I have on the policymaker side is to actually flip the question and less about how they'll respond to deepfakes and more that there's going to be a temptation by different government officials to use deepfakes in certain ways, whether that's, you know, in counterterrorism, like everything that we were just describing, right? If you're a counterterrorist official and you're trying to disrupt a terrorist uh, organization or extremist movement, you're going to have the temptation of like, why don't I just kind of like discredit the leader of that movement by creating a deepfake of them that compromises them in some way or has them say something I would prefer that they say. And one of the things that we, you know, Dan and I touch on in, our, in, in the paper that we uh, released was that we're, we're really, I think, going to have to think through, or, and I, I think this is going to be a, in particular a challenge for democracies, right? Because I don't think we want the norm for democracies to be that governments should be in the business of creating deepfakes routinely because those ultimately do kind of undermine the credibility of the broader information ecosystem and integrity of, of effectively like democratic discourse itself. But there are going, I think, to be temptations. Counterterrorism officials, security officials, intelligence officials are going to look at this in select moments and think it would be really great if we could kind of leverage this technology in some ways uh, to disrupt a particular operation that we're care, you know, we're concerned about or, or or what have you. And I think one of the things that we'll need um, and, and that we kind of proposed in the paper was developing a, as we phrase it, like a deep fake equities process, which is kind of modeled on the, for anyone with a cybersecurity background, it's model, modeled on the cybersecurity vulnerabilities process where, you know, it's basically the process that the government uses to figure out which zero days they want to close and kind of, you know, and which ones they want to actually use themselves. I think with deepfakes, we're going to need some kind of review board internal to democratic governments to ensure that if these ever are used by a democratic, you know, a military or intelligence official of a democratic government, there's appropriate safeguards and accountability mechanisms in place to, to oversee that use. Both Chris and Daniel say they're worried that the widespread use of such disinformation by non-democratic actors will create a world in which everyone partakes for fear of being left behind. I'm worried about the race to the bottom that happens when Russia starts to try and counter different terrorists and extremist groups by releasing deepfakes of them, which they clearly have the capability to do. I mean, they already tried to do it with Zelensky. Like it's, you know, it feels inevitable to me. And I, I what I worry about is this norm emerging that if Russia is doing it and if others are doing it, like how, you know, how much harm could it be for, for a democratic official or, or security service to do it as well? And I, I think there's some red lines there that we want to be really thoughtful about before we cross them in any way. And not to get too paranoid, but there's a very strong incentive for countries like Russia to actually release deep fakes that look like they're linked to American government goals, right? To try to create an environment where it looks like the United States is doing this because then it enables them to dismiss other things as American um, created deep fakes. So if there's a video of Russia atrocities in Ukraine, they can say, look, the Americans created it just like they created this other one. And that's something the Russian intelligence service is actually quite good at, is that sort of misdirection.
The future of deepfake warfare may sound bleak, but Chris argues that by taking precautions now, the risks posed by deepfakes could be mitigated. I view this as a short-term issue, but not a long-term equilibrium uh, issue. Like, I don't think this will be viable in the long term. In the short term, while people still take deepfakes seriously and have a heart, we haven't figured out either technical or societal solutions to how to deal with, with deepfakes. And I think they present an opportunity now at this moment for you know, terrorists and other groups to, to use. Um, and I, I would say, it's, you know, to Dan's point earlier, it's not just going to be a, a tactic that terrorist groups only use. Like, I think this is going to be a wide range of malicious actors that use this kind of tactic where they release or they, they generate some kind of compromising video or audio of someone that they're targeting and then kind of threaten its release to the target. I don't think in the long term this will be a sustainable kind of business model, for example, for, for terrorist groups if they're trying to get money for it or even a, a kind of political model for them if they're trying to influence political outcomes in some way. The reason I say that is I, I think over time we're either going to settle on norms of verification for different kind of content in a way that the target of a blackmail campaign will be able to kind of push back using these norms about what is authentic and what isn't. You know, and I, I'm referring here to things like you know, maybe there's watermarking and these kind of things, or our information ecosystem might evolve so that there's just kind of credible, legitimate sources of, of, of digital content. And if it's not filtered through those you know, uh, review mechanisms and nobody really takes it seriously, that's one future if we don't evolve those mechanisms going forward, I think we're headed towards a scenario which will be much worse for a lot of other reasons. But there's going to be a, you know, one future where if we don't solve the verification problem, people just aren't going to trust information that they see at all. And so if, you, if somebody tries to target you for a blackmail campaign, you basically just say, go ahead and release it. I'm going to say that it's not true. And I have no reason to believe that people are going to trust me or you or anyone, right? Like it's like, I don't, I'm not going to worry about consequences here because nobody really trusts anything anymore. A huge thank you to Daniel and Chris for joining us on today's episode. You can find a link to their research paper on deepfakes and international conflict in the show notes. If you want to learn more about Tech Against Terrorism and our work, visit techagainstterrorism.org or follow us on Twitter at Tech versus Terrorism. I'm Anna Krane. This is the Tech Against Terrorism podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. And if you enjoy listening, please rate, leave a review and share the episode as that really helps new people find us. This is an OG podcast production. Executive producer is Archie McFarlane. Produced and edited by Philip Aguiu. Sound design by Oli Guiu. Music by Rowan Bishop.